0: and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight and our guest today is Dr. Peter Lambrow, a licensed clinical psychologist in practice at Scripps Memorial Hospital in La Jolla, California. Dr. Lambrow has served as chairman of psychology and is on staff at Scripps. He is the co author of, among his many books, Code to Joy, the four step solution to unlocking your natural state of happiness. And who doesn't want happiness? So I look forward to a fascinating discussion. Welcome, Peter. It's such a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you very much, Miriam. It's really nice to be with you today.
0: Thank you. Now, Scripps Memorial Hospital is one of over 100 hospitals in the country with programs in energy medicine and energy psychology. Could you please explain to our listeners what energy psychology is and why this is such a major paradigm shift for these hospitals?
1: Well, energy psychology is taking fundamental awareness that comes from a larger body of work uh, under the rubric of energy medicine and applying it to aspects of psychology. Specifically, what we're looking at is that we we understand, and there's very little controversy anymore about the concept that the mind-body is really one thing, not two separate processes. And yet, when we talk about mind-body processes, uh, some people don't quite understand what that really means. And one way of understanding that is the recognition that the body and mind include varieties of energy systems. Now, purely uh, some people think of energy simply as the manifestation of work, of expending energy, but when we talk about energy from a physics standpoint, we recognize that we're talking about electromagnetic energy, we're talking about a variety of different kinds of energy systems, and the body has energy systems within it. Some of the most fundamental are the ones that we recognize, such as uh, electromagnetic. When people go and have a EEG uh, a reading of their brain waves, what is being measured is electrical energy, uh, likewise with an EKG their heart it 's measuring the electrical energy there 's other energy systems that exist as well that are more subtle, but that 's one that most people can identify and what has been Found over the years and research is that the energy that let's just talk first about electromagnetic energy is one that depends on organization. And research was done as early as the 40s out of Yale that recognized that the entire body has an electrical polarity. We actually have. positive and negative energy system, uh, much like a battery in a matter of speaking, although we're much more complex than that, and that if that energy system is not organized properly, that we have interferences. And again, to go to something that people can perhaps relate to is if you had the AM radio tuned to a particular station and you passed underneath some high power lines, you might experience some static for a while. Well, that's an example of how there's interference in that electromagnetic signal. And the body can have interferences as well as a result of a variety of different influences, electrical influences being one. We're, we're bombarded in our society today by the microwaves of cell phone towers, we're affected by fluorescent lights, by uh, the high power equipment associated with computers and other electrical equipment as well as other influences that uh, impinge on our uh, biosystem, and we call it a biofield, which is this uh, electromagnetic and other energy systems within the body.
0: Mm -hmm. And how did you become interested in energy medicine in the first place?
1: Well, you know, Miriam, uh, I've been in practice now for 25 years, and my colleague and I, Dr. Pratt, uh, have always been looking for processes that help people more quickly, uh, more effectively and safely. And so we were uh, early on involved in uh, utilizing hypnosis. It's actually how I got my start in psychology, the first book that I wrote on self-hypnosis. And we evolved looking at uh, EMDR or eye movement desensitization reprocessing and and Exploring different processes that could help our clients in those realms of more effective, more rapid, and safe. And uh, about in the mid, oh, I guess it was the early 90s, uh, we came upon some work by uh, Dr. Roger Callahan and some processes he had developed under what was called thought field therapy. And we were intrigued. And we continued to explore with that and evolve that process, which is a foundation of energy psychology, and came up with our first book uh, on the topic, which was Instant Emotional Healing, Acupressure for the Emotions,
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: had done some research with claustrophobia and these processes, and uh, it was uh, published in a a peer-reviewed journal that in a sense, convinced us that this was something that really had value, and again was safe, effective, and uh, um, helped people in a rapid way. Rapid way.
0: Yeah, you call it instant healing. Yes, it, it seems almost <laughs> magical.
1: Well, I got to say, the instant was our publisher's uh, term. <laughs> we we wanted to call it pretty darn quick, PDQ. But <laughs> 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 uh, they thought it, instant was a uh, but, and and actually. From the standpoint of traditional therapy, which often involves uh, months or even years of therapy, when you talk about uh, a session or several sessions uh, resolving problems that ordinarily would take uh, months or even years, instant starts to be a relatively uh, accurate term.
0: Indeed, indeed. In fact, my husband is a hypnotherapist, and um, he was the one who recognized your name um, because he has your book. And it, it really does really shrink the time of addressing these issues so dramatically that I think it's something that everybody should know about. That's why I'm so pleased that you're with us today.
1: <laughs> now, Glad to be here. And, you know, it, just to, to touch on that topic of hypnosis, uh-huh. hypnosis is a tool that does uh, those uh, qualify in that those that range that I was describing. It is uh, a real leap forward in terms of helping people more quickly, and it's a safe and effective tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, even now, uh, Dr. Pratt and I incorporate hypnosis along with energy psychology.
0: I was going to ask you that. Um... W- We we really must talk about your book, which is a four-step solution, a program that you've developed uh, with really interesting different uh, aspects. Do you ever use that in the state of hypnosis? Is it more powerful?
1: I would use it more often as a a corollary, an adjunct to it, so not so much uh, as an overlap. However that said, there are some places where some overlap does occur. Mm -hmm. One of the steps in our four-step process in Code to Joy, which really works at a deeper level than uh, merely uh, emotional issues on the surface, we really go to the the underlying process of beliefs. But one of the processes is uh, what we call anchoring, and that concept comes from NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, but the way that we apply it is a utilization of visualization as well as some of the energy work. So we've incorporated visualization in that process because visualization or imagery uh, is a very powerful part of what hypnosis utilizes to activate change.
0: Well, I think that people don't realize just how powerful our thoughts are and how they can create uh, health and illness in our body. And part of that thinking, of course, occurs in the subconscious. So that's really the crux of the issue that you're addressing, isn't it?
1: It sure is. You know, we talk uh, about the flea and the elephant.
0: I wanted you to tell that story. I love it. Go ahead.
1: Well, the flea, the flea and the elephant is a metaphor for the conscious and the subconscious. And the, the little word picture that we use is if you imagine a flea on the back of an elephant and the flea wants to go south while the elephant wants to go north towards the river, which direction do you think the elephant is going to go? <laughs> of course, the answer is the elephant's going to take the flea to the river, regardless of what the flea wants. The flea represents our conscious mind, which, while it has a great deal of capability, uh, by comparison, it doesn't have the power or the strength, you might say, of, this, of the subconscious mind in certain areas. And this is actually based on research that has been done. This is uh, research that was done in the, in the 60s by researchers in Germany that identified that the conscious mind functions um, at about forty twenty to forty neuron firings per second well the subconscious mind processes at somewhere about a million to one so somewhere between twenty and forty million neuron firings per second So, if you were putting that in the concept of a computer uh... which computer do you think is gonna have more <laughs> power you know the one that's processing at uh... 40 million bytes uh, per second, or the one that at uh, 40. So the conscious mind is often overridden by the subconscious mind in many aspects of life. Now, I, I don't want to dismiss the conscious mind too quickly because it is in the conscious mind that we initiate action that's new. It's where most uh, conscious learning processes occur. You know, we, the, the easiest example to understand for most people is how did you learn to drive a car well you first learned consciously how to maneuver the car and all of the um, complex you know eye hand coordination eye foot coordination and gradually over about a 3 month period for most people that became a subconscious process and most of us now drive relatively subconsciously mm-hmm. and Occasionally that gets in the way when we 're preoccupied with wanting to go to um, a particular place, but we 're traveling down a familiar road and we suddenly turn off at a at our work, at our work exit because we 've mm-hmm. been doing that yeah. so often yeah. uh, so the subconscious mind has this tremendous power, but it is relatively uh, unchanneled in the sense that uh, often goes in directions we don 't want to go and The operating mechanism for that in one dimension is the beliefs that we hold about ourselves, about the world around us, and about the future. Mm -hmm. And that's what Code to Joy really addresses, uh, are those fundamental belief systems that we've created based on our early life experiences as well as uh, perhaps some profound experiences in our adult life that shaped our beliefs.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. are uh, these experiences uh, are the more powerful of these experiences usually traumatic
1: Miriam it's an excellent question we make a distinction between what we would call major traumas the kinds of traumas that uh, are typically spoken about with post-traumatic stress disorder you know the ravages of war experiences Catastrophic accidents, or you know, uh, victims of crime—the things that we would all look at and go, "My, that is a that is a horribly traumatic experience for anybody." We make that distinction that is quite obvious to most people. With one that's less obvious, that we call micro traumas. Micro traumas are small events, things that might go unnoticed or unrecognized as having an influence and some of them are so small that it's only a matter of repeated experiences of them that cause the effect let me give you a, a concrete Oh, that's example. what you called
0: resonance yeah uh,
1: a young lady that uh, when she was three years old she had an experience Or three or four years old she was at the beach with her family her dad had, was holding her and taking her out into the the shallow water to get their feet wet and an unexpected wave a little larger than usual, came up and swept up over her and over her head. Now, remember, they're at the shallow shallows of the water. There was no danger. Her father had hold of her. Quickly picked her up in, her, in his arms, and they walked back and washed her off. Now, for Dad and the family, that was a non-experience. It was mm-hmm. almost, uh, it would have been perhaps even amusing in one sense, uh, but... You know, little Alexis was crying, and it was quite disturbing for her to feel that water rush over her, come into her nose, and, you know, it was not dangerous, but it was startling to her. Mm -hmm. Now, unknown to anyone around her was that this was a micro trauma for her, and it resulted in her developing a fear of water that was so profound that she eventually was unable to even get in a bathtub. She had to give herself sponge baths baths because she was that, had become that afraid of water and the experience uh, from that childhood experience had expanded in her life to create significant limitations. Obviously she did not go swimming anywhere and as you can imagine uh, having to avoid even taking a a a tub of water you know a jacuzzi for her was out of the question, things like that.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Interestingly that came up at one of our seminars that we hold a retreat in hawaii once a year and she signed up for that and it was kind of amazing because she didn't disclose that until it was time to go on a swim with the dolphins which was part of that retreat and she wouldn't even get on the boat there was a two-day dolphin experience the first day she wouldn't get on the boat and that's when she disclosed this fear that she had and so we went through that process with her the four-step uh process that we used, and uh, the next day she came and reported that she had taken a, a bath <laughs> in her hotel room uh, in a tub of water. Uh, early in the morning she'd gotten up and she'd gone out and waded out into the water, uh, you know, a little less than waist deep. Um, she didn't know how to swim, so this, she was being reasonable. Uh, after all, taking these things away doesn't make a person stupid, it does away the fear. Um, And when we got out on the boat, she was able to go out on the boat the next uh, opportunity, the next day. And with some flotation devices and an assistant next to her and a boogie board with a little viewing glass, she was actually able to enter the water and swim around with the dolphins near the boat, as many of the other people had done. And when we all got back into the boat, uh, everybody gave her a big cheer, all the participants Mm -hmm. in the seminar, for for the tremendous uh, progress that she had made.
0: I think our listeners can appreciate just how life changing these things can be, and if you've just joined us, uh, this is New Consciousness Review, and we are chatting with Dr. Peter Lambrow about his book "Code to Joy: The Four Step Solution to Unlocking Your Natural State of Happiness." So, uh, can you can you give us an, an idea of what is the essence of these four
1: steps? Certainly, Miriam. There, the four steps start with identifying. And identifying is an attempt at least uh, for a person to identify what micro-traumas existed in their life. And we actually have in in the book a a personal belief assessment. It's a a tool that helps people identify by listing some of the, we'll say, the more common kinds of uh, traumas or or micro-traumas that people experience as a way for them to to start start that process so you know they might look at uh, parents divorcing for example would be an example of how some people might experience that as a traumatic in a traumatic way and not everyone would feel it the same uh, some people had an illness in the family and that may have been a micro trauma uh, some people may have had a pet that died now again for many people that might not be a a a trauma that was going to shape their beliefs about the world or about life or about safety but for some people sensitive people it it very well could be Uh, people being teased or bullied these are micro traumas Uh, not being chosen for a team I mean you know those are kinds of we might call them everyday sorts of experiences but for some people they they impact them like a like an asteroid strike Mm -hmm. and create this belief that however irrational it is, it is immovable with simply logic and discussion. So that's step one is identify. Step two is a process we call clear, and to clear is to, in a sense, reorganize the the system of the body. I mentioned that uh, electromagnetic system. We have a breathing exercise that people go through to help reestablish that. And then the third step is repatterning, where we take the identification of what the negative belief is in step one, whether or not we find the micro traumas associated with it doesn 't really matter it 's helpful but not essential, and we reform the the old code let 's call it to be the new code, and we repattern that and install that in step three and then In step four, we anchor it in through a a couple of processes, very simple processes that people go through. Imagery is one of them that I mentioned earlier, so that it becomes ingrained at a deeper subconscious level. And then there's a process where we call it the daily refreshers and kind of mini refreshers that use that anchoring process through, um, through a, a number of weeks afterwards to really uh, give person the opportunity to anchor that in and secure it as a, as a lasting new code that allows them to experience the joy and happiness in their life.
0: <laughs> you describe seven self-limiting or blocking beliefs. Which are the most common?
1: You know, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, we, we distilled this down from really a list of I think it was almost a hundred very subtle kinds of variations to this. And we identified those as being what we felt were the most uh, common ways of understanding them. And yet what was interesting is we just did a study, uh, survey of people who had purchased the book. And incidentally, if people go to our website, uh, www.code2joy.com they can sign in and get some free stuff there, but also uh, they'll be on a list and we'll send them the survey and the results if they care to to know. One of the results of the survey of well over a thousand people was that safety, I'm not safe, was one of the top uh, issues that people identified. And the second most was I'm worthless or I'm not deserving. So those Mm -hmm. seem to be Two of the of the top ones that at least the people that uh, from the from the survey reported on I don't want to be who is the guy that does uh, Family Feud uh, the survey says well the survey says I'm not safe and I'm not worth I'm worthless or I'm not deserving are the top ones.
0: That doesn't surprise me. That doesn't surprise me. When you look at uh, in my husband's practice, he gets so many cases of of child abuse and uh, you know the, these micro traumas um, actually can be quite uh, macro traumas really quite major. it's It's astonishing the extent that we find
1: anyway, You're right and you know, one of the things just to be clear is that, when I was making the distinction between major traumas and micro traumas, it wasn't to suggest that major traumas don't produce the same kinds of um, life-limiting beliefs. In fact, obviously even more so and more Mm -hmm. likely.
0: Yes, but it's fascinating how, as you say, just a passing remark uh, that's, uh, that somebody might have made to you in the schoolyard. You will remember that all your life, and it just creates these resonances that are so difficult to get rid of. Now, you do have uh, techniques for getting rid of them. First of all, how do you know you're accessing the unconscious mind when you work with a client?
1: That's a, that's a good question, Miriam. And one of the processes that we discovered Uh, in the early years was the use of muscle strength or a process that's within the realm of kinesiology that has been used really for for many decades in physical therapy and chiropractic and many other uh, disciplines. But more recently, it's been applied in the area of psychology. And the way it's applied is that we recognize that when a person is making a congruent statement, that is to say, their conscious mind and their subconscious mind are in accord or in in congruence, that muscles remain strong. When there's an incongruence, when there's, um, you might say, an interference between what the mind, the conscious mind, is thinking and what the subconscious mind knows, then it causes a weakness. So uh, once a person has been balanced and organized in their system, which is that second step, clear, clearing, mm-hmm. then this process can be very effective to identify where there is incongruence. And incidentally, that was research that was done out of Jefferson Medical College in the uh, late 90s and published in a peer-reviewed journal by Dr. Dan Monte and his uh, his group that used a sophisticated computerized dynamometers to uh, to measure the strength of uh, congruent and incongruent statements. So when we test muscle strength in, a, in the way that we described in the book, and in fact on our website we have a little tutorial video that people can access, that that is a way of determining subconscious truth. Mm-hmm. And then we can make statements, or have the person make statements, and test to see whether that statement uh, for example, um, my, my uh, life-limiting belief for me is I am not safe. Mm-hmm. That, is that going to test strong or is it going to test weak? If it tests strong, it means, yes, that is a life-limiting belief. So that would be one of the ways that we verify what is happening in the subconscious mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you do it for yourself or do you always need a partner? The you testing. Can,
1: it, it's, it can be done either both ways. The perhaps uh, the use of a partner helps a person do it without much training. In other words, uh, it's a fairly simple process when someone else does it for you. Um, using usually we have a person extend their arm out to the side and use the uh, strength of the deltoid muscle uh, as a way of indicating. Uh, however. And we have this uh, tutorial on our website. We can do it ourselves using what's called a a bi-digital two-finger pull test, and basically a person can test themselves using that. Mm But it takes a little bit of practice to determine what's the difference between a strong and a weak response and a, a bit of a learning curve, but it certainly is possible.
0: Can you give us examples uh, of how these blocking beliefs can manifest physically?
1: Uh, Physically as in? In the body. In the body. Well, the blocking beliefs, if we're looking physically, what we would see is behaviors that are not being acted upon. In -hmm. other words, a person is not taking an action that would uh, lead them in a constructive direction, Uh, call it a self-sabotaging. At the most basic levels, it would be a person who wants to uh, incorporate exercise in their lives, but they don't seem to get around to it. So their behaviors are the interference patterns. For most people, though-
0: I certainly don't resonate with that, oh no.
1: (laughs) I think we all may struggle with that from time to time. (laughs) Uh, the, The more common way that we see these Limiting life beliefs are more in the mental, uh, attitudinal uh, ways. I mean, when I described the uh, the lady Alexis that uh, had the problem with the water, that would be a physical manifestation, and she would avoid water or people who have avoidance patterns of any sort. But the perhaps the more subtle and and yet in many ways more powerful way that uh, life-limiting beliefs interfere are in the mental psychological, attitudinal ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, here's, a, here's an example of how something very subtle, and it's one of the lead stories in our, in our book, is a story about Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie, uh, as a young girl, about six or seven years old, went over to help her aunt do some you know, rearranging of the living room or uh, help her with some chores. And her aunt uh, gave her a quarter. Now, this goes back some generation some decades so a quarter was a little bit more than it is today (laughs) and she ran home very proud this was the first money she'd ever earned and you know her aunt had given her this quarter so she runs home and she shows her mom and dad the quarter and tells her what you know aunt sophie gave her and they admonished her for taking money from the family from a family member and you don't do that now, instead of getting praised and, you know, her pride being reinforced and having done something and gotten, gotten uh, some compensation for it, quite the opposite. She felt embarrassed, humiliated, ashamed. She clearly had done something that violated a, uh, an unknown to her at that time, uh, family rule. You don't take money from the family. Now, let's flash forward to about 45 years, well, almost 45, 50 years later, and now as an adult, Stephanie has a business. And the problem is that she's losing money, and her business is spiraling downwards, and she has, for a long period of time, not been able to really experience any pleasure or joy in uh, in the successes that she had been having. At the root of this was that she had formed a belief at that point in time and with perhaps a few reinforcements from the family along the way. And she was, her clients had become family to her. So she stopped charging people for the services that she was providing or charging them much less than what she should. And her business was suffering. Now, she had out, this had permeated other areas of her life as well, where she was giving away things and, was at the cost for her. The cost was to her, and it was costing her emotionally, it was costing her financially, and the root of it was this small little event that occurred in her childhood, Mm -hmm. a belief that was interfering with the success, happiness, and joy in her life. Fortunately, she was able to reverse that
0: that's so uh, it, it must be so rewarding for you to be able to give people their lives back really
1: I'll tell you Miriam it is it is one of the reasons that my colleague and I got into this and I'm sure your husband as well is being able to help people break through boundaries or barriers or solve problems in their lives is enormously rewarding and in many ways I feel it's a privilege for people to have the trust in me to be able to give them some assistance and help them make a change. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's let's go to the title of your book The Code to Joy. Uh, you, you mentioned it in passing. What is the code that you were talking about?
1: Well the the code that we're talking about to joy is the new code that people are going to install in that third step which is the repatterning step people have unproductive codes uh... in their lives that are a result of these uh... life-limiting beliefs that we've talked about and whether it's i'm not safe or i'm not uh, i'm worthless or I'm not deserving or i'm not strong or powerful i'm not lovable i'm, I'm bad i'm wrong i can't trust all these negative life-limiting beliefs, create a code that interferes with their ability to express joy and, and feel happiness at the successes in their lives or the accomplishments or the, the simple pleasures of you know family and friends. Uh, the new code that we want is that repatterning process. And so it's taking an old message such as, uh, I'm not safe or I can't protect myself, and turning that around so that it's uh, I am fundamentally safe and can take action to protect myself. That would be a new code that a person mm-hmm. would install in that repatterning process.
0: Now, also, what's the difference between this and just an affirmation?
1: Well, affirmations cover a broad territory, and we're, I'm not against affirmations. But many times, an affirmation might be, "I am, um, I am prosperous and wealthy." as a way of sort of programming oneself, when the truth is they're not really wealthy yet. That's an aspirational affirmation. Um, this is this is more of an attitudinal affirmation, as it were, and it's coupled with an energetic process that people go through in that step that more complicated than i can really just quickly describe but basically it's activating some uh, acupressure points some neural uh, neural points in the body while they're holding a particular thought and that creates this intention statement or this repatterning statement in a way that's affected to or effective to the unconscious or subconscious mind that mere affirmations may not reach Mm-hmm. That's, does that make sense? I don't know if that's oh, oh, totally. Point,
0: because what you're doing is you're actually addressing the root cause of the issue, which is the limiting belief, as opposed to the aspiration for prosperity or for relationship, etc., Exactly. so it, it's like you have to clear out the the limitation before to make room for the new belief before you can put the new belief on top i believe you actually said that in your book
1: yes yeah, that's the clear process the mm-hmm. uh, the clearing process of step two um, kind of prepares the tablet so to speak for this new code and with that and then the uh, the reinforcement that with the anchoring process, uh, what you have is a new, a new code to belief about yourself and the world around you and your future that essentially feeds positive aspects of one's life. So then it can make uh, aspirational goals uh, such as prosperity, health, uh, relationship, love, you know, success in various areas of life possible because mm-hmm. we stop sabotaging ourselves
0: are some issues more difficult to deal with than others I, I noticed that you talk a lot about addictions and and you mentioned uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome
1: yes there there certainly are um, factors or issues that are more challenging or, or require a little more um, in a little more application than others uh, I mentioned about Alexis and the water, for example. That was a very discreet sort of compartmentalized problem. Uh, The rest of her life didn't seem to be as affected as it did about water. But then you take someone like Stephanie with the Stephanie and the Quarter uh, experience where that had permeated many other areas of her life and that required a little bit more involvement. She needed to work on that and a little more a lengthy way to resolve that. Uh, The change happens rather quickly uh, relative to, we'll say, conventional approaches, but some people who have more profound and including micro traumas, major traumas, would require perhaps additional treatment processes as well. And when you get to addictions, because addictions to uh, chemical substances, whether it's alcohol or uh, narcotics, require also some structures around them that support that change so one is the change in the belief about themselves, maybe they're feeling powerless or weak or helpless and using med- using a drug as a medication and that gets out of hand because it becomes an addictive process, change that that's one part but you also have to change the behavioral aspects and habits and uh, surrounding environments so that it's uh, something that can be supported long term so addictions would be something that might be more complex for example
0: Mm -hmm. and of course like a good establishment doctor you do always say work with your professional team
1: absolutely you know there's you know that that's a good distinction to make Miriam the book was not written to solve serious clinical problems it was written as a self-help tool to give people and empower people to be able to resolve some of the limitations in their lives, which they may not have sought professional help for, mm-hmm. although it may have deserved it. I mean, certainly uh, Alexis and Stephanie, those two examples I gave you, would, would have deserved to have seen a professional, and in fact, actually, Alexis had seen some counselors in, in her life to try and resolve this fear of water, uh, but some serious problems, so depression, serious forms of anxiety panic disorders they they deserve a a more comprehensive evaluation and professional guidance that might include using this process as a tool Mm -hmm. absolutely
0: i like at the end of your book you actually take a broader view of what constitutes happiness it's like you're you're offering people the tools to to kind of analyze and release things that might be holding them back but you take a more holistic view what are some of the other elements you're recommending
1: well uh, there's uh, (laughs) you know some of it may not be revolutionary Uh, Some of the simple things that perhaps people have already recognized are things like making a list of gratitudes, of things that they are appreciative of that are already existing in their lives. It can be very powerful when people do that. But another one that may not be as obvious to people is the effect of what are called fractal patterns, repetitive patterns at different stages or different, um, um, different scales that are often found in nature so a fractal pattern would be for example the leaves on trees or the the uh, the grasses on the on the lawn uh flowers and so forth represent fractal patterns that have been found that produce a relaxing and calming effect on the mind and body hmm. so in in that way taking a, a walk in the in nature, whether it's a park nearby, uh, the ocean waves are fractal patterns, the clouds are fractal patterns, uh, nature is filled with them. So if we take ourselves and go into, na- especially for people who might live in a, in, a, in a city or might say an urban environment, uh, getting out of that and going to some place like a park or out into the country periodically would be important. Um, there's also the, the concept of renewals. And we, we talk about renewal on four dimensions, four different levels, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, and we provide some guidance there on the, some of the things that people can do to renew themselves and do that on a regular basis so that they revitalize the, the depletion of output. And there's, uh, I think, the oscillation back and forth between our output, the daily output, both on all those dimensions and renewing ourselves on those four dimensions. So those are some of the things we put in that chapter.
0: Mm-hmm. How have your colleagues um, related to this work?
1: How have they related to it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you, you, I'm
0: sure you go to uh, professional meetings and things.
1: Perhaps, the yes, absolutely we have, Miriam. And wh- one of the ways that uh, we've, gauge that or notice that is is at the hospital itself where uh, both my, uh, my colleague and I are on staff at a, a major medical, general medical hospital uh, that does have, as you mentioned earlier, uh, an integrative center that's associated with the hospital that blends some of these processes into uh, their treatment of cardiac patients, for example. Um, that... Physicians have gradually over the years started to open up and I'm talking about some very conventional traditionally oriented uh, physicians, and we get referrals from those physicians now who who will say to a patient who they recognize could benefit, uh, you know I want you to go over and see uh, George or Peter and listen you know just just do what they ask you and them ask you to do you know. Don't like, tell me about it. <laughs> so uh, they they may not understand it completely, but they see the results. Mm. And after all, what I think most all of us are really looking for ultimately are the results, regardless of what process we're using.
0: Well, I think there are still quite a few diehards out there. I've I've interviewed uh, you know a number of people. That there was this amazing case of uh, Anita Morjani. Uh, who had a near-death experience and and came back from a coma with stage four cancer to being totally free of cancer within uh, weeks uh, substantially free within days and um, it was just uh, it was just too much of a mental leap for most of her doctors to make particularly her oncologists um, it, it's like, if uh, this i can't it's so outside of my realm of of belief that i cannot admit the possibility i i take it that you are seeing a a pretty substantial or seismic shift in this attitude
1: you know something just came to mind as you were speaking and um, asking that question Um, some years ago uh, a woman came in to see me who had been diagnosed and been treated for ovarian cancer three times. And it, she was in the third remission. And she was so unhappy with the physician that she had before because this physician was just unwilling to look at alternative approaches in addition to tr- conventional approaches to treating her. And she had assembled. After the second bout, she had assembled a team that um, included physician, a physician that really was open to this, and you know, acupuncturists and nutritionists and all sorts of um, complementary or integrative approaches. And I came in as well after the third one, third episode to assist her with the psychological, emotional, and we worked with some of these energy processes with her to clear what was a residual anger that she had and resentments that went way back in her life. And this was years ago, and I, I followed up with her, and just recently, a couple of months ago, I, I got a email from her, and it was just sort of a... Uh, an update after I hadn't seen her for several years letting me know that she was still in remission, she was still doing the processes that she had uh, learned from me and from all the other, you know, the other um, mm-hmm. professionals, and that she was uh, just come back from one of her screenings that they do periodically, that she is still cancer-free. And just that what she had done, I think, is is important. She had found the people the physicians, the complementary uh, healthcare professionals, to help her, that believed in her ability, her mind, and her ability to heal herself, as well as she was still taking the medicine. I mean, I'm, she didn't abandon conventional medicine, but she had added these other components and found the professionals that were willing to help her with that and, and believed in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people in any area of their life need to do: is to find professionals. Uh, helping professionals that believe in their ability to help themselves heal as well as be healed.
0: I remember um, reading in a book by Louis-Mail Madrona, who's on the uh, integrative faculty at uh, University of Arizona and Pittsburgh, I think, saying that he discovered that a correlation, a direct correlation between the confidence a doctor had that a patient would recover and a patient's recovery
1: rate. Absolutely. You know, we're finding this is one of the powers of the mind that is so un, untapped right now. I mean, there's so much more that can be done in, in harnessing the power of the mind to heal the body, to, to work together, for the mind-body to work together. And expectation, positive expectation is one of those powerful processes that we don't understand how it works, but um, Clearly, the evidence is is very real, and when people talk about the placebo effect uh, and almost dismiss it as an artifact of research, uh, I'm just amazed because it is the placebo, the belief that something can help, that has an enormous ability uh, that medicine typically is trying to beat. (laughs) It's like the the high watermark they're trying to reach over and above, and that uh, we sort of dismiss that as, as something that, um, well, I think we just don't know enough about it. But one thing that is in favor of this positive viewpoint, this expectation, the the power of the mind, is that we as human beings, as biological beings, are chemical manufacturing plants. So virtually every medicine that exists outside of us, not, there are exceptions, but. Most medicines that exist outside of us that we take as pills or in injections or whatever really are mimicking something that the body is capable of producing as well.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so perhaps one of, the, one of the mechanisms that the expectation and positive belief activates is the uh, internal chemistry uh, plant of the body that's able to generate the antibodies, generate the uh, neuropeptides and so forth that are uh, aiding in healing and, and wellness.
0: And and the the biggest help, of course, is a feeling of internal joy and happiness, which your wonderful book is a, a real milestone. So I I can't recommend it enough to the readers. It's called Code to Joy: The Four Step Solution to Unlocking Your Natural State of Happiness, by Dr. George Pratt and Dr. Peter Lambrow. And so, um, Peter, I, I want to thank you so much for sharing this with us today. Uh, it's tell a us...
1: delight to be with you, Mary. <laughs> thank you.
0: Tell us your website again.
1: It's uh, www.code2joy.com.
0: Code2joy.com. And
1: lots of good stuff there. There's uh, just coming and visiting. There's some free things that we offer people, some resources that we've created. Uh, if they buy the book uh, and then they come back to our site, there's a place where they can click and there's a, a number of bonus items that some uh, colleagues and partners, uh, people have partnered with us are offering as free gifts when they purchase our books. So when they come to that site, there's a place where they can uh, redeem those with the uh, order number or receipt Excellent. number from uh, wherever they bought the book.
0: Excellent. So, Dr. Peter Lambrow, thank you again. Goodbye. And now it's time for our track of the week with music selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. With styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz, this growing group of musicians are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. This week we're featuring Move On by Lisa Bell, a song about how hard it is to let go of the safe and familiar even when it's time to move forward in our lives. No. Bell from Boulder, Colorado. It's from her third album, Dancing on the Moon. To find out more about Lisa's music, go to lisabellmusic.com. That's dot music.com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today. To find more fascinating books, films, and events, check out our website at ncreview.com. You can also leave comments for us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ncreview. So, until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.